Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. What do you do when your president's a criminal? It sounds like a bad pamphlet at the doctor's office, and it's the kind of thing you hope you never have to learn about. For almost 200 years of our country, the language that the framers of the Constitution wrote on how to deal with impeachment was used only once. But in recent decades, there's been a massive acceleration. Presidents Nixon, Clinton, twice with Trump, and now an impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden, not to mention the prospect, the return of a president in Donald Trump who has threatened to terminate the Constitution, against whom impeachment may be the only defense. Impeachment seems to have simply become a reality of modern American politics, and a critical one. To understand what we're dealing with, we're very fortunate to have the leading expert on presidential impeachment, the man who literally wrote the book on it, a book which is coming out today and is called The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. Michael J. Gerhardt is the Burton Craig Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina Law School, resident scholar at the National Constitution Center, and the author of six books. He is the only scholar to have addressed the entire House of Representatives on presidential impeachment and is one of only two scholars who have testified in three presidential impeachment proceedings. He served as special counsel to the Senate's presiding officer in Trump's second impeachment trial. Most recently, he was the sole expert witness for the Democrats in the Joe Biden impeachment inquiry. So, Professor, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being here. You start your preface by writing, quote, almost every generation in America has discovered an unsettling truth about our Constitution. The mechanisms for holding presidents accountable for their misconduct are far from perfect. So what was the vision of the framers of the Constitution for how impeaching presidents was supposed to work? Was it supposed to be rare? Was it supposed to be only for the most serious and provable offenses, or were they deliberately ambiguous because they didn't quite know the answers? I think it's yes to the first two of those questions. They did expect it to be rare. They did expect it to be used for the most serious misconduct of presidents, but I don't think they thought what they were doing was ambiguous or uncertain. Instead, I think there's a basic principle that the Constitution really realizes in all of its parts, and that is no one is above the law. That was extremely important to the framers. 
They broke away from England in part because the king was not subject to law, and he was the only person in the entire country who was not subject to impeachment. So when the founders uh, established America, one thing they made sure to do was to ensure that the president would not be above the law, but instead would be subject to impeachment for treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. I, and just to underscore that, I mean, I'm just looking to your own citations, which are uh, in the middle of the book, page 120 in your galley, although by the time it publishes today, page variation may occur. Alexander Hamilton explains the president of the United States would be liable to be impeached, tried, and upon conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors, removed from office, and would afterward be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. You have George Mason of Virginia wondering, shall any man be above justice? Above all, shall that man be above it who can commit the most extensive injustice? The point seems to be that, you know, as you say, this was intended to hold presidents to account and not just for indictable crimes. And it seems like you organize your book into looking at historic examples, the few that we have available and what the lessons are that can be learned. And it seems like in the early phase of the Republic, the Congress was trying to figure out what this power meant. And you go through kind of this early phase culminating in the first impeachment of President Andrew Johnson, but also citing the fact that there were threats of impeachment. There were proceedings that might have led toward impeachment even before that. So obviously we want people to read the book, but maybe if you could just pick out from that first early phase of America, just give us a flavor of some of what you learned, some of what can be learned from those first experiments with presidential impeachment. I'm happy to. Actually, one of those first experiments uh, takes the form of the Declaration of Independence. If we were to read that, it's, it sets out 27 articles of impeachment against the king. So impeachment was very fundamental and crucial for the framers in envisioning a different country, a different regime than what they had experienced in England. So the highest ranking official, the president, would himself be subject to discipline through the impeachment process, but as you just pointed out, would also still be subject to legal avenues of redress, depending upon what the misconduct is. One of the, so if we go back and look at the earliest days of impeachment in the United States, the various states had impeachment processes or analogs to that, and they became, to some extent, the model for the federal impeachment process that we have today. But one thing that also became very clear uh, from the very first impeachment is that the first Congress, which consisted of a lot of people who helped draft the Constitution, were interested in trying to use impeachment as a way to get at the most serious kinds of misconduct that they uh, were aware of. And in fact, the first impeachment was of a senator from the state of North Carolina, William Blunt, who was, for lack of better words, uh, a crook, was uh, liable for bribery and all sorts of other misconduct. And he was expelled from the Senate, voted 25 to 1, and therefore was out of office. But interestingly enough, the first Congress proceeded to impeach him. And then the Senate held his trial. And the big question in that trial was not whether Blunt had committed any misconduct. It's whether Blunt, as a legislative officer, was subject to impeachment. And ultimately, the Senate, a majority of the Senate voted to convict Blunt. But there was a minority that blocked the conviction 
in part because they didn't think senators were impeachable officials. After all, he had just been expelled from the Senate. So what we should recall that with impeachment, there are only two sanctions. One is removal, that had already been done for blunt, and the other was disqualification, which essentially means ensuring that the person will no longer be able to occupy federal office. Michael, Paul, can we go off menu here for a second? Because I think our intent had been to go more or less sequentially through the book, you know, and go to the lessons. But I got to say, I'm hearing some echoes. I'm not the impeachment scholar. You are. But I'm hearing some echoes here of what later became really critical in Trump's second impeachment, where the controlling argument seems to be to Mitch McConnell that you can't impeach a president who's out of office and convict him to bar him from holding office again because the Constitution does not allow that. That seems to be what emerged, and we were going to refer to this later. We had the uh, reporters, Karen Demersion and Rachel Bade, who did a book on the two Trump impeachment on this show a little ways back. And they took us inside those rooms and those deliberations with Mitch McConnell. That seemed to be the argument that controlled the day. So let me just throw that right back at you. I mean, this is a fascinating historic precedent. Am Am I right? You're absolutely right. But what it also reminds us is that much of the so-called law of presidential impeachment is really settled. It's clear. And what happens sometimes in presidential impeachments is presidents uses their defense really obscuring what impeachment is about, trying to sort of confuse and perhaps misstate the law in order to help themselves stay in office. That's been true, I think, for every president who's faced serious threat of impeachment. And we can find the answers uh, to many of the questions that come up in those later impeachments in these early days uh, of the Republic. When Blunt is acquitted, for example, in that first attempted impeachment trial, it's largely not because he no longer occupied an office. It's because the office he occupied was not one that was subject to impeachment. And that's a very critical distinction. And if we look at other uh, impeachments that follow, particularly the presidential impeachments that follow, we're going to see some of these basic questions that we wrestle with today really answered quite clearly previously. Which, And one of my hopes for the book is that it will at least share with everybody the so-called black letter law, what's settled, so they don't get confused when people try to confuse them. The other thing that, that, that struck me from an answer uh, you gave to a previous question was the quote from Alexander Hamilton about the subject to impeachment and then the legal processes would take their course. It seems to answer one of the burning questions today, given that we're about to hear about the the question of presidential immunity or hope that we get to hear about the question of presidential immunity really quickly because the former President Trump is arguing that whatever he did as a president renders him immune now that he is out of office. So this notion that Hamilton raised about, okay, impeachment, and then once out of office, subject to other legal action, uh, even though Trump wasn't convicted, he was impeached but not convicted, he is now out of office, that seems to be pretty settled. I do think it's very settled. I I think every scholar, every serious scholar that's looked at this comes up with the same answer, which is that the double jeopardy clause, which is in the Fifth Amendment, only forbids trying somebody twice in criminal court 
right. for the same misconduct. The critical thing there is criminal court in a criminal proceeding. We've just pointed to some language in the Constitution that ought to settle once and for all that impeachment does not in any way preclude a subsequent civil or criminal trial. Beyond that, we also know that impeachment is not a criminal process. The only sanctions available in impeachment are removal and disqualification. There's nothing, and that's it. Whereas in a criminal proceeding, one's life or limb may be put in jeopardy, but one's life and limb are not put in jeopardy in any way, shape, or form in an impeachment proceeding. So I think this is a very easy question to answer, and I think it was primarily raised by Mr. Trump just as a delay mechanism. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, so, so now we're going to go way off menu. I'm going to jump to a question that I'm savoring <laughs> and saving for later. But since you raised this, okay. Michael, this is one of the fascinating points that emerges from your book. You say that impeachments are not legal proceedings. They're political proceedings designed to address serious misconduct that cannot be addressed through legal channels. Now, I am about to go out of my depth, okay? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional scholar. And I'm with a former prosecutor and a constitutional scholar. So <laughs> here we go. Boy, I'm looking forward to you both telling me that I'm really wrong. I'm going to stretch a point that we made on the show last week. We were talking about our old friend, our former guest, Shanna Bellows, the Secretary of State of the state of Maine, who has made a determination to exclude Donald Trump from the Maine ballot. And Paul gave a really excellent cogent and compelling argument for why this is not a judicial proceeding that she's overseen, but it, it has due process and it's within the law and within the Constitution. And it just for me, it echoed some of your language about impeachment. So I'm overdrawing a parallel here deliberately. But it does seem to me that we're finding this schism between the popular conception of what needs to be a judicial process under the Constitution and what the Constitution actually holds, which is there are intentional political processes that can be undertaken to find redress for misbehavior, or in this case, insurrection, which also happened to be the issue with Trump's second impeachment. What do you make of that? Am I badly overstretching here? Or I mean, that seems to be a fundamental point and takeaway of your book is, Folks, don't mistake this for a judicial proceeding. It is a constitutional, but a political proceeding. I, I don't think you've stretched anything. I think that's exactly the, the, the point of the federal impeachment process. I, I think what happens in practice is there are a number of people who don't know much about the process who will mischaracterize it, and then others who may mischaracterize it for their own purposes. For example, in several well, I shouldn't say several, but in the few presidential impeachments we have, have had, presidents tend to focus or tend to suggest that the language, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, primarily means, oh, it's got to be something criminal. It's got to be something really badly criminal. 
That's a way to narrow the scope of impeachment, but it's not an accurate reading of the clause. And instead, I think impeachment is designed to reach misconduct for which there is no legal remedy. There can't be a civil case, there can't be a criminal case, but there's still something bad that happened. Impeachment is designed to get at that something bad. And it's especially important in that instance because there's no other way to address the misconduct. Take, for example, a president's abuse of his pardon power, or a president's abuse of his veto power, or a president's abuse of the bully pulpit. Doing any of those things doesn't mean the president's going to end up in court in a civil or criminal case, but it does mean that president has abused his power and therefore committed a classical impeachable offense, and that is a basis for holding him accountable through the impeachment process. All right, so one more follow-up on that then. So when there was a threat of impeachment against John Tyler, essentially, as I read your book, for vetoes, for overreaching vetoes, that is constitutional. That is within what the framers wanted to see happen. I think that it, 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 I'll, I'll describe it as fair game. So, so Tyler, compared to earlier presidents, used the veto authority somewhat aggressively. And because of that, his political opponents, and by the way, everybody was a political opponent to John Tyler, they tried, they suggested impeachment. But the critical thing to understand, after Tyler gave a very eloquent protest, they failed to impeach him. And I think part of the reason for that is that in order to show an abuse of power, you have to establish two things. One is bad faith and a bad act. There's nothing to suggest credibly that Tyler was really acting in bad faith. He simply had a different point of view. And as far as the bad act goes, it's not necessarily a bad act either for a president to veto and he doesn't like. Guess what? Every subsequent president did what Tyler did. So the Tyler, in a sense, gets off because he ultimately um, did not abuse a power. In fact, Tyler was defending an executive prerogative, the veto, against legislative encroachment. That seems to compare with uh, leaning on the uh, president of Ukraine to try to get at your political opponent as an abuse of power. Of course, I, I would agree. I was one of the four constitutional law scholars that testified in 2019 in the first Trump impeachment proceeding. And I did believe then, and I still do believe, that President Trump had committed an impeachable offense in his attempting to coerce or leverage the president of Ukraine to simply announce that he was opening a criminal investigation into Joe Biden when there was no proof or any kind of credible evidence at all, but it was merely in Trump's self-interest that announcement would be made. Abuse um, of power. That is abuse of power. And if we think about it, who is the one official in the United States government who interacts with other nations' heads? Who's got that authority? Who's got that power? It's the president. I mean, I don't get to do that. Citizens typically don't get to do that. But presidents do. So how do we keep a president in check when he's, for example, inviting other countries to interfere on his behalf in an election? How do we keep that president in check? The basic answer is impeachment. Oh, and you go ahead, Paul. I've lobbed so many of Michael. Yeah, you go. Yeah, I was actually going to go back to, to, to something from the book to sort of see if it, it, how it relates to what we've just been talking about, these questions of what is abuse of power and what did, you know, what was the intent about impeachment? And going back to the Nixon and Clinton impeachment processes, 
I'm curious about, Professor, what stood out to you from each of those that helps people understand impeachment better, given what we've just been talking about, impeachment as this political process, not a judicial process. I, I think the impeachment effort to remove Richard Nixon from office is as close as we're going to get to a paradigm or perfect example of how the system should work. There were investigations for months in Congress, both in the House and the Senate, before there was an impeachment inquiry approved against Richard Nixon. Beyond that, there was also an investigation by a special prosecutor. So we had three different authorities, the House, the Senate, special prosecutor, all investigating misconduct by Nixon. They all proceeded sort of incrementally and professionally and reached conclusions that Nixon engaged in bad misconduct. Then the question became, what do we do about it? That's when the impeachment inquiry was authorized against Nixon, incidentally, authorized with the votes of Republican members of the House as well. And by the time Nixon was facing the prospect of not just being impeached by the House Judiciary Committee had approved three articles of impeachment against him, but the prospect of a trial in the Senate, Nixon was told by Barry Goldwater, the sort of the dean of the Republicans in the Senate, you don't have the votes to escape conviction in the Senate. So that was a remarkable episode in which people of differing parties came together and recognized that the Constitution was more important than political party. I can't say we've met that ideal subsequently, but that is a great example that we can all learn from and try to follow. And then that contrasts, I bet, with your view of the Clinton impeachment. With Clinton, things get a little more complex. And part of the reason for that is, you know, there's a passage of roughly 20 years between when Nixon, 20, 25 years, between Nixon's circumstance and Bill Clinton's. But by the time we get to Bill Clinton, one thing has changed. And that is, remember, Richard Nixon resigned rather right. than face certain impeachment in the House and certain conviction in the Senate. And by the time we get to Bill Clinton or Donald Trump, we have presidents who have no desire to resign. Mm. They will not resign. I mean, it's just not in their character. And therefore, what those presidents, Clinton, for example, would do is really challenge their party to stand with them in opposition to impeachment. And that's what happened. Democrats united behind Clinton in the House. They united behind Clinton in the Senate. And there were enough Democrats in the Senate, once they were united, to prevent the Senate from reaching the threshold for conviction, which is at least two-thirds of the Senate favoring conviction. I'd like to take you outside your scholarly brain for a second and put you, we've already cited Hamilton, so let's go all the way to in the room where it happened. One of the best parts of having Karen and Rachel on the show was getting some of the texture from their book about what it was like inside these rooms. Now, Paul has actually been inside these rooms as a member of Congress. I've sort of been in tertiary position, sort of peering in through the crack in the door. You have been very much in the room during these impeachments as a witness or as the special counsel to the Senate's presiding officer in Trump's second trial. So if you wouldn't mind, give us some flavor. What stood out to you? What surprised you in terms of the physical experience of being part of this? I mean, we know that there are imperfections in the process, but 
they have very much been met by imperfections of the people who are applying it. So, you know, what was memorable about that experience? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. As I look back, I'll say that the first memorable thing is probably unique to that period of time. Remember, this is not long after January 6, 2021. And of course, there'd been a riot at the Capitol. Uh, there'd been destruction at the Capitol. So by the time the House was considering impeachment, and I was already kind of present around the grounds at that time, it was the, the Senate and the House were both closed to the public. Oftentimes, let's say with Clinton, the public's allowed. But with the second Trump impeachment trial, it was only the, the senators, ultimately, their staff and security. And that security mm. included members of the armed forces. So the entire Capitol office buildings were surrounded by a high wire fence. Right. And in order to get in, you had to go not just have an ID, but you had to go through troops to get into the Capitol. And that I will never forget because as I, you know, sometimes I'd be walking down a hall and I'd be literally the only one. The Capitol felt many ways deserted. Or I'd be standing in lunch with people on either side of me who were armed with machine guns because they were protecting us while mm. we were there. So that circumstance was unusual because it was only the people who had literally the business of impeachment to handle. And the only other thing I would add to that is that everybody was quite serious. I will say that in spite of whatever one might think from social media, Republicans, Democrats, everybody was quite serious. And with a presidential impeachment, by the rules of the Senate, that takes off every other piece of business from the Senate. That's it. If there's a presidential impeachment on the calendar, everything else gets pushed back. So everybody in the building was there for one purpose. That's really remarkable to hear. And it it contrasts sure. so much for me because I worked in Congress in the wake of 9-11. I actually worked in one of the four offices that actually they found anthrax in, which was delightful. And right after 9-11, they also had members of the armed forces. Literally, I used to live half a mile from the Capitol and I'd walk to work in the morning. And on my way to work at every intersection, four corners, there were two members of the armed forces stationed there with very full combat gear. And that was, there was a sort of oppressive psychology, this sort of fight or flight moment, kind of like feeling to everything going on around us, this sense that, you know, at any time, if you heard a fire alarm, it was, you know, it was very triggering for people who had been there that day. And it's remarkable to contrast that with the proceedings you described, that same kind of you're literally in the smoking ruins of the Capitol. You're there for this purpose. And yet we got the vote that we got. It's just, it, it's a fascinating backdrop of psychology that there's no question in that. It's just, that's, that really stands out to me. And it makes sense that this would be sort of an extraordinary moment in American history. And I think that one of the, the things that could be said about everybody who was in that building at the time is that there was a sense almost of, if I can say this, a sense of a patriotism. We were all there because this is what the Constitution required. And so this is part of the seriousness that everyone, I think, brought with them in that experience. And because I was working with the pres presiding officer, under the basic rules, 
that we had operated under, we essentially were cordoned off from everybody else. As the presiding officer, we weren't sitting with the Democrats, obviously not sitting with the Republicans. Senator Leahy believed as presiding officer, he had to be nonpartisan, and therefore there was no kind of extra communication. Mm. If, if there had to be communication with us, it was always done formally and carefully. And the only other thing I will say about those circumstances is we were there soon thereafter, January 6th. So we saw all the damage. Nothing. We saw the broken windows and the boarded up windows and doors. And, and, um, and one thing I will share from Senator Leahy, which I hope he'll be okay with, is that he was in the building when the rioters came and locked into his office. So the rioters are wandering around looking for people presumably to hurt. And, and you can just imagine how frightening it must be to be locked in your office, just hoping they don't break the door down. And one of the things we saw when we watched the tape or the video during the impeachment trial is we saw the senators following the security guards out one way. And then about two or three seconds later, you see them running the opposite way. Yes. But there was a crowd coming, not to cheer them, not to pat them on the back, but as far as we know, to either kill them or maim them. Yes, including Senator Profiles encouraged Josh Hawley, who raised a fist in solidarity with the rioters and is later seen on the tape uh, fleeing in terror. That's a piece of editorializing on my part that you in no way have to be associated. So <laughs> on that pleasant note, given Profiles encourage. You know which party I'm coming from. I'm I, just I, saying. I, I understand. But so so I think that's actually a pretty good jumping off point to a question about the current perhaps most unique impeachment proceeding ever, because let us, let's remember, in each of the previous instances where matters got to a formal impeachment inquiry, except maybe for the Tyler incident, which we talked about, it seems there was at least some violation of law to point to. In Andrew Johnson's case, which uh, Professor, you lay out so well in your book, there was an issue of violating the Tenure in Office Act which, let's admit, may have been a pretext for things Congress didn't like, but was nonetheless an actual law. In the current impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden, there's nothing, nothing. Is there any precedent for this? Is the Tyler episode a, an unfortunate, a precedent which the current courageous Republicans in the House ought to be examining before they have plunged into their impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden? I, I don't think there's any legitimate precedent for what we're witnessing right now with regard to President Joe Biden. And this is not a comment on what he did as vice president or anything else. Don't rely on what I'm saying. The Republicans' own witnesses said in the first impeachment inquiry hearing back in September of last year, that there was no evidence yet that Biden had committed any impeachable offense. Between that declaration and when the House as a whole authorized the impeachment inquiry, no other evidence had been introduced. And so Republicans themselves have said there's no evidence here. And in fact, the further proof of that is if you look at any hearing and listen to anybody who's talking about Joe Biden's impeachment on the Republican side, they're going to spend most of their time talking about Hunter Biden. And Hunter Biden certainly has had a troubled life. And 
he, I'm, you know, the, the law will hold him accountable for whatever it is he's done or not done. The fact that Hunter Biden may have engaged in various kinds of misconduct does not mean the president is engaged. And I think right now there's a lot of hope and hatred directed at Joe Biden. I also think, at least personally, the movement to impeach Joe Biden is an attempt to gut impeachment of any seriousness, to turn it into just another stunt. And that might be just in time for Donald Trump, if he is reelected, to be able to be the president he wants to be without any concern about impeachment, because impeachment would have been destroyed, in a sense, before he got there. It feels like you saw our draft question list in advance, Michael, because that really is the perfect segue to what we wanted to ask next, which is impeachment workable anymore. It, it seems like if this is the only constitutional remedy for criminal behavior or other kinds of misbehavior by sitting presidents, and if it is a political process, and if we're in a time of extreme partisanship, where seemingly no action from Donald Trump would ever go too far for Republicans to vote to impeach or convict him and no action, no exculpatory evidence for Joe Biden would be enough to prevent an impeachment of President Biden based on total vapor. Is impeachment just a hollow media exercise now? Is it workable or is it, is it lost as a true constitutional mechanism? I think we don't know the answer to that question yet. I think that there is evidence, however, that impeachment is being degraded and again, diluted of its seriousness. I don't think there's much doubt about that. I think that uh, uh, if impeachment, however, is taken seriously, then it still has bite to it. So even though, for example, uh, Donald Trump was acquitted, not just the first time, but the second time in an impeachment trial, note that seven Republicans, the largest number ever, voted to convict a president of their own party after that second trial. And so you had a majority of the Senate voting to convict a president of the United States or a former president of the United States. Add to that the fact that all the, when you look at all the statements that came from Republican senators, and for that matter, all the senators after the second trial, you have at least two thirds condemning Donald Trump's conduct, including a speech by then minority leader Mitch McConnell excoriating Trump and saying Trump is responsible for all of that misconduct. That all suggests to me impeachment still had bite. Very few people come into the Oval Office hoping they'll get impeached. It's something, it's most important, most potent, I think, as, it, as a curve against impeachment, making presidents think twice, if not longer. But if impeachment becomes a joke, then we just have that much less to protect us, the American public, from the misconduct of our highest ranking officials. In fact, you start the, your chapter on the future of presidential impeachment by saying that presidential impeachments are stress tests for the Congress, presidency, American people, and constitution. It seems like we are failing those stress tests right now, but you're saying there's some hope. You're saying there's a chance. Yeah. You know, I teach constitutional law, and that, that's an act of optimism. I think, you know, you, if you come into the building every day, as I do, and try and teach students. And I think I still have some hope because, at least to the present, you know, Joe Biden has not been impeached yet. Up until the present, impeachment really has tainted a presidency. I think one reason why 
Donald Trump wants Joe Biden impeached is not just to hurt himself, to hurt Biden politically, but Trump wants to dilute the mark of impeachment. You know, that the bad, the scarlet eye, I suppose, you know, the bad letter that, that has been imposed on him. And so he can't do that by acting in accordance with the law, but he can do that by undermining impeachment and wielding it against his political enemies to such a point that impeachment itself becomes just another political weapon. That is not what the framers thought. And for anybody that respects what the framers did and talks about original meaning, you will not find anywhere that impeachment should be a joke or should be used as a political weapon. So if I go back to your uh, previous answer, in which you focused on uh, the seven Republican senators who voted for the uh, conviction of uh, Donald Trump in the second impeachment trial for his acts around inciting the insurrection of January 6th. And I jump over what, what we might hope with optimistic idealism to be an anomaly, i.e. the vapid, transparent attempt by the current Republican majority in the House to go after Biden. If we just jump over that, but focus back on what happened in that second impeachment inquiry of Trump, we can hope that history will will see the Biden impeachment inquiry as an anomaly in history. And, and it does give us hope that the intent of the framers will be preserved. Is, is if you this book is fascinating and it's important because of the you know, I think impeachment has become quite central now in our thinking about our political process we've never you know there are a lot of firsts with trump we've never had someone so transparently corrupt in his abuse of power attempting a coup as as trump what's the one thing that you wish readers and the American people in general will understand better about impeachment and take away from the reading of, of your book? I think one thing that people could do is when they look at a circumstance involving impeachment, particularly presidential impeachment, take the political parties and the name of the president out of the equation and ask yourself, okay, is there reason for us to do an inquiry here. Is there serious misconduct? We don't know, you know, which party this person belongs to. We don't know that person's politics. We just know about this possible and perhaps established evidence of misconduct. That's the question we should be asking ourselves. And when people seek to use impeachment, as I think it's being used right now against Joe Biden, solely for political purposes, it's not going to be just impeachment that loses. It's going to be another institutional loss, another institutional guardian, so to speak, of our democracy is going to be dismantled. Take, for example, what current Speaker Mike Johnson has said. Mike Johnson said right before the, the full House vote on opening an impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden, Johnson said he, and I'm paraphrasing to some extent, he's the most corrupt person ever in the United States. Now, by the way, right before that, he said he wasn't going to prejudge it. But ask yourself this question. If he thinks that Joe Biden is the most corrupt politician in the history of the United States, 
how does he manage not to identify any misconduct at all by Donald Trump? Donald Trump has been indicted for more than 90 felons. Donald Trump, I mean, the evidence that supported the first impeachment is on tape. It's on video. The evidence supporting the second impeachment is on tape. It's on video. And yet, as far as Mike Johnson is concerned, and I assume his Republican allies, will just look the other way. That is an indictment, not of impeachment, but it's an indictment of their credibility. And I think that's what we uh, have to be able to rise to be able to say. I'm not trying to argue for the Democrats or the Republicans. I'm arguing for the importance of the U.S. Constitution. And the way in which I think we can best do that is don't ask whether or not President X or Y should be impeached. Ask whether or not the president should be impeached, regardless of party, regardless of name. And what's the actual credible proof of it? That's a, it, it really does take me full circle to one of my formative experiences in, in politics, where when I was in grad school, I was at the Kennedy School and former U.S. Senator David Pryor, a great ally, he was an Arkansas senator, a great ally of President Bill Clinton, was the head of the Institute of Politics. He, he was great. He'd introduce me to people. He'd say, Donald Brazil, come in here. This is Matt Robeson. He's one of the finest young people ever at the Kennedy School. And I was, it was great. I was like, you know, you don't really know me that well, but that's such a nice thing to say. <laughs> and he told me a story that right when President Clinton was being inaugurated, one of his Republican colleagues in the Senate opened his suit jacket and he had a button inside that said, impeach Clinton. And I, what I read into your book is it's a serious but entertaining and historically interesting attempt to just get people to take impeachment seriously again, not take it as kind of this, let's make the buttons now before the man is even inaugurated, right? Let's take this seriously because it is the only remedy for criminal and corrupt behavior by the most powerful person on earth, certainly in our country. And it has to be taken seriously. It has to be it has to be treated with the reverence that it deserves under our constitution. And it's an important read. It's a good read. I hope people will go out and read it. The book is The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. We will have an Amazon link. Do you prefer the Amazon link? You like the Amazon link, right? You are <laughs> under the thumb of Jeff Bezos like the rest of us. We'll have the Amazon link right in the show notes. Uh, Professor Michael Gerhardt, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> 